Chapter One of the Half Breed, A Tale of the Western Frontier, by Walt Whitman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chuck Williamson. The Half Breed. A Tale of the Western Frontier by Walt Whitman Chapter 1 Loudly rang merry peals of laughter from a group of children, of almost every age and size, as they emerged one afternoon through the door of the rude log schoolhouse in the little town of Warren, a place situated on one of the upper branches of the Mississippi, Less than seven years previously, the site on which the dwellings of the Warrenites now stood had been a tangled forest, roamed by the savage in pursuit of game. An adventurous settler purchased a few hundred acres there, and with some companions, took up his abode and gave it the name I have mentioned. The place numbered nearly three hundred inhabitants loudly rang the laugh of the liberated children master caleb the teacher stood in the door of his schoolhouse and gazed with a cheerful smile upon their noisy merriment he was a pale young man from the east and because that his strength did not allow him to engage in the heavy labors of his comrades for in the west all men are comrades he gladly accepted an offer from the fathers of the village to take charge of the education of the small people hurrah said one harum scarum young elf who was running and tearing like a mad tiger hurrah the master has given us a holiday next thursday because he is going to peter brown's wedding hey hurrah but bill said a larger and more sedate-looking youth addressing the elf bill be quiet and don't act so foolish can't you see mr caleb is looking at you well rejoined the other what if he the sentence which the exuberant child was about to utter was cut short suddenly by a loud shout from seven or eight of his companions bodo bodo they cried bodo is coming and they pointed with their mischievous fingers to a turn in the road at about ten rods distance where a figure was seen slowly walking or rather limping towards them more than half the party had started off on a gallop and in a few moments they were at the side of him who had attracted their attention. Bodo, as the youngsters called him, and that was the name he went by all over the settlement, appeared to be a man of about seven and twenty years of age. He was deformed in body, his back being mounted with a mighty hunch, and his long neck bent forward in a peculiar and disagreeable manner in height he was hardly taller than the smallest of the children who 
clustered tormentingly around him. His face was the index of many bad passions, which were only limited to the degree of their evil, because his intellect itself was not very bright, though the sedulous care of some one had taught him even more than the ordinary branches of education. Among the most powerful of his bad points was a malignant peevishness, dwelling on every feature of his countenance. Perhaps it was this latter trait which caused the wild boys of the place ever to take great comfort in making him the subject of their vagaries. The gazer would have been at some doubt whether to class this strange and hideous creature with the race of red men or white for he was a half-breed, his mother an Indian squaw, and his father some unknown member of the race of the settlers. "'Why, Bodo,' said the elf, Bill, "'howdy-do, you lovely creature. I haven't seen you for a week.' And the provoking boy took the hunchback's hand, and shook it as heartily as if they had been old friends forever. Bodo scowled, but it was of no avail. He was in the power of the lawless ones, and could not escape. "'What's the price of soap, Bodo?' said another urchin, pointing to the filthy hands and face of the Indian. And they all laughed merrily. Oh, "'Devils!' exclaimed the passionate half-breed making an impotent attempt at blows, which they easily foiled. "'Why do you pester me? Go, go away, or shall I turn upon you?' "'Oh, Bodo, dear Bodo, do not let your sweet temper rise,' said little Bill, and he patted the Indian on his head, as a man would do to a child. Bodo glanced up to him with an expression of hate, which might have appalled any but the heedless one on whom he gazed. He turned round and round, like a wild beast in the toils. But wherever he cast his look, he saw nothing but the villainous little fingers extended, and roguish eyes flashing. The poor fellow was indeed sadly beset and was rapidly working himself up to a pitch of rage, which might have caused some of the thoughtless crew a broken head. At this moment, the tall boy who had reproved Bill in front of the schoolhouse came up, and beholding the plight of the tormented one, offered his gentle interference. "'Boys, boys,' he cried, "'don't let us bother this poor friend of ours any more.' Come now, are you not willing that he should go? He paused, and it was plainly a doubtful case whether his mediation would be successful. The boys had just come from a three hours' confinement to their lessons, and they felt disposed for anything in the shape of mirth. So like a prudent arbiter, Quincy Thorne, the tall lad, offered a kind of compromise between both difficulties. "'I'll tell you what,' said he. 
Bodo shall say all about where he has been this afternoon, and what after, for I see he has just returned from a long tramp, and then we'll let him go. Hey, boys? Agreed, said the band. And the hunchback, garrulous by nature and glad, no doubt, to be let off thus easily, at once commenced his recital which we shall take the liberty, however, for our reader's sake, of giving in our own style. Uh, you know, said he, of Peter Brown, the blacksmith's marriage, which is to take place soon. Well, even this could not be managed, it seems, without the help of Bodo. A marriage needs a priest, and hereabouts one of that kind is not often met with. Now I, who so love to see my neighbors happy, the hunchback grinned, could not bear that the pretty sport should all be spoiled for want of priest. And so? Rather say, interrupted the elf Bill. You feared the loss of some drinks of rum and mules of pork you had set your heart upon getting at the wedding. Bodo snarled at the saucy boy and continued. And so I said to Brown that my worthy teacher and friend, Father Luke, the lonesome man of Oak Creek, might be brought hither. They say he is a priest and not exactly of the right sort to suit the people here, perhaps, but when the nearest town is distant a three days' journey, we are not apt to stand on trifles. The priest, then, this Catholic monk, I think he calls himself, being the only one near at hand, and even the place where he lives not known to many of the people, Mr. Peter bid me to go and see him out, and deliver him a message written on paper. More than ten hours have I been wandering up and down the banks of the river, and through the wood, to discover the house of the lonesome man. I, Bodo, to whom every tree in the forest I thought was known, and every dent in the shore, and every swamp and thicket, could hardly find the place. Not that I have ever taken pains in search of it before, for I defy any of you, the cunningest boy of all, to hide a dead squirrel within five miles where I shall not ferret it out. So well do I know every spot." Well, after a long time, and when I had more than once thought of giving up the search and coming back, which I might have done had I not reflected on the disappointment of Mr. Peter and the rest, what should— Don't lie, Bodo, interrupted the elf again. You can't deny it was fear of the trouncing you might get, and nothing else that made you keep on. The group did not laugh at this sally as at the former ones, for they were anxious to hear the end of the story. What should I see as I came out of a thicket about 
two hours walk from here but father luke himself he was standing at the bank at a high place and looking down into the stream quiet as one of the trees back of us i approached him and told him of my errand though i knew not his residence we were old acquaintances in times bygone so i thought it strange that he should start and tremble like a frightened girl before i spoke a word he took my letter and then asked me into his hut for it was near at hand he led the way and i followed a few rods before us to the side of a crag all covered with bushes and hanging trees he parted them at a place where not one eye out of a thousand would have suspected aught else than the brown ground to lie underneath and we were in a room dimly lighted in some way from above whose sides were stone and dirt half hidden by some domestic utensils there stood a table in the middle of the room covered with books and a pa covered with books and paper he sat down there and taking a pen told me he would write an answer to the request i brought in a few minutes it was ready he put before me some drink and meat, and then, though he spoke not, I saw he wished my departure. Carefully noting the place as I emerged, in order that I might tell it again if occasion required, I bent my steps homeward. And now you have all of my story, and I must go for it is time peter brown received his answer the children made no opposition to his departure with the exception of little bill who gave bodo an extra pinch and stout pull of the hair ere he scrambled off to engage in some new mischief the house of peter brown was situated at one end of the village a pleasant place where the beams of the sun of a clear day dazzled the gazer's eye as they were reflected from the stream peter contrary to the advice of his neighbors had in clearing up his land left a number of the finest trees standing close to his dwelling which divested it of that rather disagreeable aspect of newness which a lately settled town almost invariably possesses the house too was of better build and material than most of its fellows it was of logs to be sure but it had a number of good glass windows and two tall chimneys and doors which swing on hinges and fitted tightly the blacksmith lived in it now alone a day or two more was to see him with a companion, however, and that companion a wife. The daughter, 
of a respectable man of his own grade in life. Some three or four rods distant, on the other side of the road, was the shop of the blacksmith, with its smoky fire and bellows, and the anvil which, every morning, was heard to clink with rapid and ponderous blows. Leaning idly on the handle of the bellows stood the master of the establishment himself. He was a stout, well-made, strongly jointed young man, with light hair and clear gray eyes. Though not what is called handsome, he was far from being ill-looking. His lips were beautifully cut, and his neck might have been taken by the most fastidious sculptor as a model of that part of the human form in some fine work of art. What were Peter's thoughts about? Nothing more or less than love. He had dispatched Bodo many hours previous, and he feared the malicious creature had forgotten or disregarded the duty, and would not perform his bidding. A dozen times during the half-hour would he step to the door of his smithy, and strain his gaze to catch any glimpse of the returning hunchback, and in vain. When at last he beheld the messenger, and looking into his face, saw the expression of one who returns to a master with news he is sure will be pleasant. He forgot his determinations to wring Bodo's neck and beat him with a bar of iron, and so on, and eagerly demanded the result of his mission. The hunchback told the story, which the reader has already heard, as related to the school-children, and then gave to Peter the note which had been sent to him from the monk. Impatiently breaking the seal and opening it, the hunchback read as follows. In answer to Peter Brown, the blacksmith. A wretched man has come to me with a demand that I should perform the ceremonials of marriage between yourself and a maiden of your town. The messenger explains that no holy minister of your faith is at hand, and entreats me in your name to refuse him not. I am a Catholic monk, for reasons of piety and choice, hiding myself aloof from any communion with my kind. But in this matter, though a strict interpretation of my priestly allegiance might keep me from granting what you ask, uniting two members of a church we condemn in bonds of marriage, I have thought fit, taking all things into consideration, to do as you desire. On the morrow, I shall visit the village, and will hold further conference with you on the subject. The Monk A plague on the roundabout way of his saying yes! exclaimed the blacksmith with a laugh, as if it made any difference whether our father sat in a meeting-house or heard mass before papal altars <laughs> in such a case as this the briefly informing Bodo that, as he had been faithful and successful, he should be rewarded still farther. 
the happy peter gave him a small coin and prepared to shut up his shop for the purpose of walking over and telling the news to the family of his intended bride end of chapter one